last week we finished up with the Psalms of Ascent. Now, I'd said a few weeks before that we were going to be moving into uh, working our way through 1 Samuel, uh, which we will be doing uh, starting in, uh, in the beginning of the year. But I started looking through the passages, and with Christmas coming up, I didn't think everybody would really enjoy hearing about Eli falling off of a stool and dying uh, around, uh, around Christmas time, because uh, that's about the schedule of where it would fall. Uh, and so uh, we, we haven't done an Advent uh, Christmas uh, series in, in a while. Uh, and so um, for Advent, we're going to do something. I'm going to work through uh, Matthew's uh, genealogy uh, in the beginning of Matthew, looking at the women that are mentioned there uh, in Christ's line through that genealogy. So that's what we'll be doing for Advent. Um, so that leaves us about four or five weeks up until Advent begins. And since we are going to vote as a congregation early in January on uh, electing elders and deacons for our church uh, and talking with the elders from our presbytery, I thought it would be good uh, to take these next few weeks to make sure that all of us uh, as a congregation are on the same page and understanding what Scripture tells us about the uh, authority in the church, um, who the, the officers are in Christ's church and how that, that, uh, that functions that we are moving forward informed by scripture on what we're going to be doing when we are electing officers and what the scriptures tell us about that. So that'll be, I'm going to have somebody preach for me one of those weeks in there. They'll be doing something different. But for the four sermons that I'll be preaching on that, we're going to, we're going to look at at four things. One, this week we're going to look at uh, at the the authority of the church, uh, seeing that it is uh, Jesus is the one king and head of the church. uh, And he, he exercises and uh, uh, administrates that, uh, that authority through his officers. Uh, the next week, we're going to look at the, the role of officers in the church, so elders and deacons. The following week, we're going to look at the qualifications for those elders and deacons. And then lastly, we're going to look at the role of the congregation uh, and the members of the church in connection to, uh, to that. So that's where we'll be over the next, uh, next few weeks. Um, I hope that you find it uh, beneficial and informative and glorifying to, to our Lord. Uh, so this morning, we're going to start with that, that uh, first, uh, first sermon out of uh, Matthew chapter 16 will be our main, our main text uh, as we are looking to see uh, where authority comes from in the context of the church. Uh, and so well, we're going to be in Matthew 16, looking at verses 13 through 20. Uh, if you want to follow along there in your uh, copy of God's Word, if you're using one of the Bibles there in the seats, uh, this is on page uh, 822. So if you would, please follow along with me as we hear from the Word of God. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. 
I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And he strictly charged his disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Let's, uh, let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you have uh, given us your word. Uh, we thank you that you uh, rule your church through your word and through your spirit. You apply your word to the hearts and lives of your people. We pray this morning that you would, you would do that. Lead us, shepherd us, teach us, make us more like you. Make us more like the people that will live for your glory and your honor in this world. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, the first thing uh, that we want to look at in this passage is to see how Jesus communicates and the scriptures establish that Jesus is the one king and head of the church. Uh, look at how uh, it comes out, even beginning with what Jesus says there in verse 13, when he asked this question, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And now that term Son of Man could be understood to just be talking about a human. That was language in the Old Testament used just to, to describe humans. But Jesus is calling himself the Son of Man, a, a particular, special, unique human, a unique Son of Man. He, he's referring back to, to Daniel 7. Listen what Daniel says in verse 13 of chapter 7. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and he was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus is using this Old Testament terminology uh, that he's bringing forward uh, with this, the weight and the freight that it brings to communicate who he is as Lord and King of all things. The ruler, the one who has dominion, not just on earth, but through all things in, in heaven, that he is the one who rules and reigns, the sovereign one. Uh, but notice that further what, what is communicated. When he asks his disciples who he thinks he is, Peter responds using this language. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. When we, we looked at that when we were uh, working our way through some of the Psalms. Christ is uh, the, the Hebrew equivalent is Messiah. This anointed and promised one that the Old Testament was pointing towards uh, that would come to rule and reign and to deliver and save God's people. The heir of David who would sit on the throne, that the, the kings were called sons of God. Uh, but here Jesus is not just talking about, and Peter is not just confessing that Jesus is going to be this one true ruler and king, but he's also communicating and establishing that Jesus is the son of God, God in the flesh, who has come to redeem and save and deliver his people. Notice also what Jesus talks about in establishing his, his uh, authority. As he goes on down, he, uh, he, tells, he says this to Peter uh, in verse 19. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Well, how, how is it that Jesus 
can give the keys of the kingdom of heaven unless they're his keys to give. Unless he is the true king, the true king of heaven. Jesus, again, here, establishing himself in this place of not just being a mere man, but of being God and man, the ruler over the kingdom of heaven that, is seek, that God is seeking to establish here in this world. But as he gets fine-tuning and talking, which draws us into understanding why we're looking at this passage this morning, is seeing that Jesus isn't just the king of all things in heaven and on earth. He's not just the Christ and the Messiah, but he is the one king and head of his church. Notice what he says in verse 18. I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. It's his. Jesus says and claims the church is mine. I am establishing it. I'm building it. It's not just beginning here in the Gospels. The church doesn't just begin in Acts. The the language that Jesus is using here of of church, this assembly, these called out ones, we saw when we were going through Acts, this is picking up on Old Testament language that Jesus is talking about, the full fulfillment and establishing of his redeemed and his renewed and his restored people. And Jesus is saying this people, this church, this assembly, these gathered and called out ones are mine. Why can he say They're his. A couple of years ago, uh, I had a a blue bike that I always parked on the front porch of our house. One night we had a lot going on. I thought I might be uh, leaving after I got home, riding my bike back from from my office. And so I left it on the front porch and forgot to lock it up. Next morning I came out and my bike was gone. Called the, uh, the police department to report that my bike was missing Texted and emailed some of the people in the church just to be on the lookout for my bike. Uh, no, no word. Then I'm driving down Aaron House one day, and lo and behold, in front of Pizza Hut, there goes a guy down the road on my bike. I know it's my bike. There's no other bike like that in Elizabeth City. It's nothing special, but it's just not another one like it. So I turn around, and I start following him. My heart starts beating. I'm not. I'm not a pursuer like that. Uh, so I call the police. I'm like, I see the guy on my bike. <laughs> so they come, and it's just really strange. I can tell you the, the story later. But they finally get the guy, and they stop. And they want to know, what proof do I have that I didn't just say this guy stole my bike? Well, you see, I had registered my bike with the police department, and I had my mark on that bike. You flip it over and look on the, the frame of the bike, and it had my number and my registration that corresponded to a card that I had that said, this is my bike. Jesus has marked his church. He's marked his church with baptism. We see that being, we've talked about this before, a sign and seal of the purification that Jesus brings, marking his church as being his. But what does that water point to? The purifying blood of Jesus. Jesus has purchased and bought his church with his blood. The creator of all things took on flesh, entered into our world, and purchased a people for himself with his very blood. And Jesus looks over his church 
and he speaks to his church and he says, you are mine. I am your Lord. I am your God. I am your king because I have purchased you. I have bought you. I have redeemed and saved you. What implications does this have for you and for me? Well, if Jesus is the one head and king of his church, then that means that you aren't, I'm not the king and head. It's not my church. planted this church along with our presbytery and many of you. It's not my church. It's Jesus' church. This isn't your church. You didn't purchase this church by your blood. You may have given some money to purchase this building, and you did. But the church, the people of God, One has claim over them. And it's the risen and exalted Christ. It is his church. That means that if we as a congregation and as leaders are going to think about who the church is, what the church is to do, who is to lead the church, how they're to lead the church, who's to be a part of the church, When one can be admitted into the the congregation of the people of God. Or what situations or circumstances might come up when one might be removed from the church. What's the mission and purpose of a church in the world? It really doesn't matter what I think that might be or what you think that might be. What matters is what does Jesus say about those things? Because as the one Lord and King and head of the church, what Jesus says is what defines it all. And so if we as God's people, both leaders of the church and members of the church, are going to recognize the authority of Jesus, the one King and head of the church, then we must submit to him in every aspect of our lives but in particular, the way that the church is organized and governed and structured and how we live our lives out in and under that. So that leads us to our next point that we see here. Jesus is the one king and head of the church, but he administers that, that authority and that governing over his church. Uh, through his word and his, his spirit, we've talked about that and. In other places, but here what we're seeing is that Jesus administers that through the officers that he establishes in the context of his church. Notice how that is communicated here in this passage. Look in, in verse 18. This is after, uh, we'll start in verse 17. So Peter's made this profession, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus answers him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. That just means son of, bar is son of, son of Jonah. Uh, For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, 
And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Here, uh, Peter makes this profession about the, the identity of Christ of Jesus, of who he is as this Savior, as this Redeemer, as the Son of God who has come to redeem and deliver his people. And Jesus makes this statement. Uh, here he's using, uh, uh, when the, the use that he uses here are, are, are singular. He's talking here in this context about Peter. He says, Peter, on you, and as you are making this profession, this true profession about me, this is the rock that I'm going to build my church on. Uh, We'll see later in, uh, as we go forward that this isn't going to be just Peter alone, which is the, uh, an, a misunderstanding of this passage that some use to think that, that Peter and the succession of his, uh, his, uh, those who, who have his uh, apostolic authority uh, are those who are the, the king and head of the church. Uh, but we see that here he's calling Peter, you're this rock, and on you I'm going to build my church. Well, well later... Jesus is going to ascribe these same things to the, the rest of the disciples. In fact, as, as Paul relates and talks about this later, he says that, that what Jesus is doing is he's building his temple, is he's building of, of his people, is built on the foundations of the apostles and the prophets. So what Jesus is establishing here is that those who are, who are the, the foundation of his church and what this authority is built on extends from the right and clear teaching and revelation of the apostles who are clearly communicating who Jesus was, what he did, what his life, death, and resurrection means for a lost and fallen world. But as he, as he goes on, notice what he, he says to Peter. In verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, now understand what Jesus is talking about. We need to understand what this language and terminology of keys means. Now, in the biblical worldview and in this, uh, this time to understand uh, when there was an owner of, of, a, of a house, or a lord of an estate. He had an administrator that he granted authority to carry out on his behalf and administer his, his estate. And he would give him keys to allow who the, who the owner said can come into my, my home or my estate, you let in. And who I, I say not to let into my home, you do not let them in. That's that, where this, this terminology and understanding of binding and loosening that he uses. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. But also the, the, the people that are a part of this, this community, what the, the, the administrator or the steward would be, would be to provide for and care for and oversee those who are a part of this community that this leader has entrusted to them. And here, Jesus, as he's speaking to Peter here first, is saying, that is how I'm under, what I'm understanding about you. This is the authority that I'm entrusting to you to be a, an overseer, the administrator of my people, that I'm granting and giving you authority as being the one who will let in who I say is to be let into my community. 
And that as you lead out this authority that I've granted you, when there's times where I'm saying this person should not be within the context of my community, that you would put them out, that you would care for and, and shepherd and provide for my sheep who I have entrusted to you. Uh, and the, the way that we see that, that this isn't just that Jesus is saying this is something that is unique to Peter or unique to the apostles, just a, a couple of chapters over in chapter 18, the same language and terminology comes up as Jesus is speaking, and he applies this same concept, not just to Peter uniquely or to the apostles uniquely, but to church leaders uh, in general. Look over in Matthew chapter 18, in verse 15. This is where Jesus is beginning to talk about conflict resolution and seeking after a, a, a sinning and unrepentant brother or sister. In verse 15 of chapter 18, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, and here this same language gets picked up, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loose in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it'll be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. So we see here, Jesus is applying that same terminology of the, the authority and responsibility that comes from having the keys he is now in saying that it is to be uh, established by the apostles and passed on to the leaders of these churches. Uh, but some may say, well, when he says, turn them over or present, bring them before the church, maybe he's just talking about the whole church gathered together, the whole congregation. But it's interesting to see the language that Jesus uses here when he says that you're supposed to go and bring one or two others along because a charge should only be established and there's two or three witnesses, Jesus is, again, drawing on Old Testament understanding. This is very important for us to understand. The Old Testament gives us the worldview by which we understand and interpret the New Testament. It also goes the other way. The New Testament helps us interpret and understand the, 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 the Old Testament as it's more fulfilled through Jesus. But here, in this context, these witnesses and these charges that are talked about is when a, a dispute or something would come up among the, the, the Old Testament church, the people of God, the, the people of Israel, and they would bring their concern before the, the, the assembly. It's talking about the leaders, the elders, the judges. That's, that terminology is what was used in the Old Testament. And as they bring this before those who are authorized to uh, administrate God's people in that way, they are the ones who make this decision. Jesus is just bringing these, this same idea and understanding as he's talking about establishing and, and, uh, uh, and administering his church. 
But here now it's being moved from what in the Old Testament we would have seen as understood to be the priest, the Levite, these elders and judges. Now it's being transitioned through the establishment of the 12 apostles as they then pass on and establish churches and appoint elders in those particular contexts. One of the reasons that we can see that that is something that is being uh, taken away from these, uh, the older understanding of the elders in, the, in that context, uh, Jesus comments here just a couple of chapters over in Matthew 23. In verse 13, here he's, uh, uh, he's rebuking and, uh, the, the scribes and the Pharisees, the leaders of the people at that time, for how they have failed to carry out the responsibility that was entrusted to them uh, through the establishment of God's people. Notice what he says in verse 13. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would go in to enter. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. See, their responsibility was one that would, uh, would uh, lead and guide people into the kingdom of God and, and, uh, and establish and, and shepherd them so that the kingdom would spread. And they failed to do that well. In fact, most, a lot of the, the Old Testament prophets are condemning the failed leadership of God's people for leading his people astray. Here we see Jesus doing it in the New Testament. And we see that as Jesus talks about his fulfilled church moving forward, the establishment of this kind of authority, moving from these priests and judges and elders to the apostles, and then through, because the apostles aren't going to stay around forever. Have you, have you ever met Peter or James or John, Thaddeus, Matthias? He was added later, but he's still one of the apostles. No, they died. That office ended. It was for a unique and special time. But what do we see in the New Testament? They're establishing elders in each local congregation as they make it. Not just one elder, multiple elders to administer and do what? Oversee the church. That's the language that's used in the New Testament. That terminology, elder and overseer, is used interchangeably, as well as this term, shepherd. To care for, to guide, to lead God's people. Notice as we see this authority, as Jesus is seeking to administer and oversee his church, look at what he says they are given the authority to do. Do you notice what happens when someone is unrepentant and refuses, regardless of what you have professed with your mouth, if the way that you live your life denies that Jesus is Lord and King and Savior, look at what Jesus says that the church is able to do, the elders, the officers are able to do in Matthew 18. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, put them outside of my fellowship. View them as being no longer a part of my flock, of my covenant people in judgment. This is 
This is weighty. This is a great and weighty and significant responsibility. Some may say, who do do you think you are taking on this kind of authority? Who are you to say whether I'm a part of this church or not a part of this church? Who are you to say, elders, whether I can take the Lord's Supper or not? Or when I am to be baptized or if I can? That's mine to decide. No, it's not. Jesus is the one Lord and King of his church. And he has said, and we're seeing it established here and carried out through the New Testament, that Jesus, in administering his lordship and his authority and his care over his church, he has appointed officers to carry that out. They are the ones who are the overseers, the shepherds, the ones who are tending to the flock, those who have the keys of the kingdom, and those who, as they are following and submitting to and trusting Jesus and leading his flock according to his word, as they act and as they respond, it has the authorization of Christ as it's carried out. As it happens on earth, so shall it be in heaven. As it happens on earth, so shall it be in heaven. I've had people who have been upset with me because they found out that in, in our understanding of what the scriptures teach is that it isn't a parent's uh, responsibility or authority to determine when their child begins to take the Lord's Supper. Or, for that matter, for anyone, for you to, de- to determine on your own when you take the Lord's Supper. It's, it's our, our responsibility, a great and weighty one, to admit you to the Lord's table. Because we've seen in, in 1 Corinthians, if someone partakes of it wrongly, there's great consequence. This, this is something that Jesus has entrusted to his leaders, to his shepherds. And we must do that. Because the glory of Christ and the purity of his church is at stake, the scriptures tell us. And this must not be something entered into lightly. Those of you who have been nominated as Uh, elders and deacons who are going through our training, you need to hear and recognize this. You need to recognize and understand if you are elected, the authority that is being granted to you. It isn't your church. It's not my church. You will only recognize your authority properly if you recognize and see that it comes from Jesus. He is the one Lord and King of the church. And your authority only extends as far as you exercise it in conformity to the word and the prerogatives and the intentions of King Jesus. This is not your church. This is not my church. And hear the warning of James. Not many of you should, be de- should desire to be teachers or leaders of Christ's church, because you will be judged more severely.
You want to know the quickest way to ruin a church? Fail to recognize your authority, leaders of the church. Fail to recognize Jesus' authority. Been listening to some podcasts recently that are talking about some churches that for a while experienced exponential growth. Seem to be doing great things for the Lord. Thousands of people were attending. Guess what? They're no longer in existence. Why? Their leaders didn't understand this. They thought it was their church. They thought the authority that they had was all about them, and they, mis- they abused it, they misused it, and the church tanked, and the glory of Christ suffered, as did his sheep. But this also has implications for the members of our church. You need to realize that as these officers the elders and deacons in the context of the church, as they lead and shepherd God's people in conformity to his scriptures, they have authority. It's not fake authority. It's not just a a, a smoky vague. It is real authority that has been granted to them as they have been appointed by Jesus. When you elect elders and deacons, You are not electing people to represent you, to carry out your purposes and your ambitions in the church. They are representatives of King Jesus. They are his stewards. They have his keys. They are administrating and demonstrating his kingdom. The way that we recognize Christ's authority as, and, and as it's administered through his officers in the context of the church, is submitting to these officers as they follow and trust and hope in Jesus. The election that we have here is really what it's doing. It's, is it's confirming among us through the collective gathering of God's people who God has appointed for shepherds in this church. Not a popularity contest. But you may say, well, what happens when you do something wrong? Because let me tell you, we will. Jesus hasn't granted you infallible leaders who always do things perfectly and who will do things right. What do you do? You're not called to submit to us if we are leading you astray. If I'm leading you to hell, don't follow me. But, just as we affirmed and professed today, we are connectional church. Just this past week, uh, as a a presbytery, I was a part of a, a group of elders that gathered together to hear an appeal from members in another church in our presbytery who disagreed with a decision that their elders had made concerning them. They submitted to the leadership of Christ Church by appealing to other elders to step into the situation to discern what was going on and to make a decision. And we decided and determined that the elders were in error. 
and we decided on behalf of the members of the church. But notice what that's doing. Is it submitting to the authority that Jesus has established in the context of his church, administered through his officers? This is a great and weighty thing. But this is what we need to remember. Who is the one who has established this authority? It's Jesus. You want to know how much he cares for you, people of God? Enough to die for you? Why do you think he's placing these shepherds, these officers, over his church? Because he cares about you. He wants your good. He wants your best. He wants you to be conformed to his image. He has given himself to redeem and save and purify you. Shepherds, elders, deacons, you need to know this too. Take your cues from Jesus. How did he exercise his authority? By dominating? No. By suffering and dying and giving himself. There's a sheep. Domination. Authoritarianism. Manipulation. Abuse. Has no place in the church of God. Because we must remember, Jesus is the one Lord and King of the church. And he administers that authority through his officers and all of us, those who might be elected in our congregation and you as members, me, I'm one of those shepherds, we must recognize this authority properly as it comes from our Savior, our Redeemer, and our King. Over the next few weeks, we're going to look more at the implications of this, the roles of these officers, the qualifications of these officers, and more lastly, at your role as a congregation. May it all be for the glory of Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that the gospel is true, that the only reason there is a church, that there is a people, is because you paid the costly price of your blood to purchase and redeem and save us. We pray that you would continue that great work, continue to shepherd us, give us officers in our church that reflect your desires, your character, and your glory. Help us to follow you. In Christ's name, amen.